0: My home office, devotional place, serves a second purpose as a second guest room. So when my mom was in town, she would sleep in there. So when I would get up in the morning, and and uh, start my day with the knees and nudges, bowing down before God, surrendering my day, I had I did it in the living room. So I knelt down at the couch. And as I knelt down the couch one day, Sheila has a bird cage right here. Um, she used to have two finches, but now she has one because one went to be wherever finches go. And as I was bowing down and, and kneeling, the one finch that was left came over to the side of the cage closest to me and started squawking at me. And I looked up and I thought, is that what the devil looks like? I mean, trying to interrupt your... And I, and, and I thought, I don't know what's up. So I, 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 be, I prayed again and just got louder and squawking and fluttering around and flying around and as if he, he, she was trying to tell me a message. And I looked up at the finch and I go, I have no idea how to speak finch. <laughs> and so I have no idea what you want. And I mean, I could have looked to see if there was water and feed, but Sheila takes good care of the birds, so I knew there was. And so I said, I don't know. I don't know what you want. I can't help you. I don't know what you want. i got to pray. So in Jesus' name, shut up. And then I went back to praying. And it worked. And so I prayed. And I, and I thought, how, how many people have about that view of what it looks like to communicate with God. That God must be saying something in this world, but because they don't speak or listen or interpret the language of God, they don't understand what he's saying. Wow. And maybe, we, maybe they pay attention and say, well, maybe I can figure some things out. I mean, from you know, the, just the surface kinds of stuff like I could have tried to, with the finch, but no real communication. Which is sad because Jesus spent a lot of time telling us that he wants to be one with us. That he's sending his spirit to live within us so that we can know him deeply. We can know what he wants. That we can experience his peace and we can have his direction. He spent a great deal of time com- trying to communicate that So what's the problem? I want you to uh, open your um, bulletin. And at the the top, I, um, and this is not from an academic study, this is just purely what I have taken from relational communication and God communication. The phases of interpersonal communication The first, is commu- the first is communication. So communication is simply the act of transmitting a message. Communication can be one way. So you can hear somebody tell you something, you know, this, this is my name. My name is Herb. You've, you've received a message, but there's not been any kind of response. The second phase is conversation where it moves to two-way. And so both people in this interaction are communicating. There's a conversation back and forth going on. But uh, the deeper level is communion. And I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper, the, the um, celebration of you know, the, the juice and the, the bread. I'm, I'm talking about an intimate fellowship, an intimate, harmonious relationship. And so with conversation, you have this interaction where you really have to explain yourself a lot. When you get to communion, you begin to have this intimate relationship where you understand, you can, you can be sitting in a car together going somewhere and not saying anything and, and feel like there's a connection. It's what happens, I mean, maybe it doesn't happen with you, but when I can see Sheila and all she has to do is nod her head or, you know, give me a look. And I know exactly what she's trying to communicate because it's a deeper relationship. But that's not the deepest one. What Jesus tells us that his desire is, is oneness. That's union. In Jesus' last conversation with the 12, that's what he said his desire is. My my desire is that you be one with the Father as I am one with the Father. That oneness, that union. And my observation is that very few people who are even Christ followers get to that place. And, get the, and it's frustrating because that's the place of real abundant life, of deep abundant life, of, of pleasure. With, with God. Just being, when you're at one with somebody else, when you have that kind of deep union with somebody else, there's enjoyment just in being in together. You know, it's the same thing, do anything. It's just, there's this deep connection and that's what God wants for us. And so prayer is a lifestyle, I put in your, your outline there, starts with communication. It starts with God sending information to us so that we get a message. But then he wants to move it to conversation. And so it's interacting. We pray and we listen. We use the word of God to hear his voice as well as the spirit that lives within us and and we respond to him. So there's this interaction. But then he wants to move us to a deeper level, and that is this intimate fellowship of communion, where we are we have a sense of his presence. There's, there's this rapport, there's this harmony, but even deeper than that, he wants to move us to union where we, there's a oneness that is the most precious thing on this side of heaven. That's prayer as a lifestyle. Next Sunday begins our week of prayer with fasting. Fasting then is a means to experience God more deeply. It's over the last 25 years, I've discovered it is the best spiritual discipline. It is the key element of people moving from conversation to communion and ultimately to union. Because it causes us, fasting in, in its most basic form is simply giving up something that is legitimately ours in food saying no to that in order to say yes to God. So that when we are fasting, it's a reminder. No, and, and no matter how much we want to be reminded 24-7, it's, it's hard to keep that. But with fasting, every time your stomach grumbles or every time you, you um, head towards food, either for nourishment or just for comfort, and you say no to that it it it's a cue to say God I want you more than food. And over a period of a week of doing that you are moving towards him you're listening more more closely to him you're you you are giving yourself more fully so that you can experience him more deeply. The problem is we don't want to give up food, right? I mean that's not there's no fun in that. Because we have to deny ourselves. Think, I, I have to go without popcorn for a whole week. What a sacrifice. Nah, it's nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of having intimacy with God. So prayer with fasting is an invitation to more than we can imagine. It's not a demand. It's not Jesus saying, you need to do this in order to stay right with me. It's saying, do this to come closer to me because what I have is so much better. It's a deliberate way to adjust ourselves to God. And so take a look at the insert that's in your program. And there's a lot of, if you've been around any length of time, there's a lot of the same information here, but I want to highlight. The statement at the top, um, we put there pretty much every week of prayer and fasting. What might happen if we seek God through prayer and fasting with our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength? We are aligning ourselves with Him. We're giving ourselves to Him. What might happen? And what might not happen if we don't? In experiencing God this last week, that was part, one of the questions. Is what might not happen if we don't adjust ourselves to God? We don't know what we might miss. But as I was praying this morning, it, it occurred to me that there are so many people uh, who claim to follow Christ that, um, that, that look at other people who have an intimate relationship with God. And it's just obvious that they, they are in love with God and they are experiencing life. And they look at it and they go, why can't I have that? And they can, but they don't. They, they're, they're getting a glimpse of what they're missing because they haven't taken the time to allow God to draw him into his presence. You can't shortcut that. Our theme scripture is, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Fasting is an invitation, of a, it's a means, it's not a secret formula, it's not Holy Spirit fairy dust, it's just doing the hard things, hard, difficult, uncomfortable, in order to pay attention to God. So there I put a, uh, a paragraph about fasting, um, it's, about, it's not a, about food, it's about God. It's about accepting his invitation. It's about intimacy and alignment. It's about a spiritual experience using food. Um, And so as, as you approach this week, so between now and next Sunday, ask God how, when, where he wants you to fast. That's why I never legislate how you should do it, because God knows how he wants you to seek him, how he wants you to focus on him through fasting. He knows. So listen to him and then schedule some unhurried time with God during next week. Set aside the noise that's, that's in your life in order to spend some extra time with him. And then we'll have an all-church prayer gathering Wednesday of next week, and we'll focus on, on this. Prioritize your daily appointment with God next, during that week. Live in that conversation, and then pray the fasting prayer. Every time you get hungry, every time you want food, every time you, you want to go to that which you're giving up, Pray this prayer, Lord, I love you more than food. I love you more than that. Do whatever you want to in my life. And that opens the door. That invites God to do whatever he wants to do. Reduce the noise, double down when it gets hard, turn to other people. On the backside, my habit as pastor of the congregation is to, in preparation for the week of prayer and fasting, say, God, what is it you want us to focus on? And here's what I sense God highlighting. I heard, I, I, I just since I heard this, pay attention. That, that's really what I heard, just pay attention. I don't know what that means. But I think he wants us to get our antenna higher and just whatever he wants to do, just, just keep your antenna up. Pray for more workers to the harvest. That's That came to mind. Out of the scripture from Luke chapter two, Jesus deliberately told his followers to pray this prayer. The harvest is plentiful. In other words, there are a lot of people out there who are looking for God. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And, and I would say, and, and make that us. Lord, show us how we can be some of those. Pray for the lost, those who don't know Christ as Savior, and the lonely. I, that's, I use that word lonely just so that they both start with L and you can remember them. Lost are those who don't know Christ. Lonely are those who don't have a church home. Lonely are those who God wants to be a part of this church family. Mission ask God to show us his next steps and then pray for me and one another as God brings people to mind. And then record the significant stuff. In Experience of God, we've emphasized uh, making a record of those spiritual markers, those insights that God might give you, lessons or instructions or assurances. Um, because as we are praying the fasting prayer, Lord, I love you more than food. Do whatever you want to in my life. We're more attuned to what he might want to show us. And um, very often, weeks of prayer with fasting have, been, have a significant impact in individual lives, but also in kind of the culture and the trajectory for us. Surrender, listen, obey, um, I think came out of that. I know knees and nudges came out of it uh, a couple of years ago. There's stuff that will happen. So, so write that down because the devil will want to take it from you. So pay attention to that. And then there's a lot of different ways of fasting. It could be a, a liquid fast. It could be fasting a couple of days. It could be one meal a day. It could be a Daniel fast, partial fast. Here's what I, here's what I would say is nobody gets a pass because, you, because of your health. Because you can eliminate certain foods and still have the kind of diet that you need. All right? And then the next week is Thanksgiving. (laughs) Yeah. A couple of weeks after that. Yeah, Thanksgiving. It is worth it. I can't tell you how... I I would never be able to describe all that God has done in my life over the last 25 years through the discipline of fasting. It's key, absolutely key. So, Lord, we give it to you. We give ourselves to you. We ask that you would guide, that you would show us, that you would point us how you want us to lean into you and walk in step with you. Lord, let us hear your voice. Um, protect us from the devil's lies, schemes, and snares. And let us be so in tune with you that we hear and obey. Now, God, guide us into the truths that you want us to see from your word and and use it to transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So don't be a finch. I don't know. what Experiencing God realities, I put them there for you. I'm not going to read through them again. But I do want to highlight number six because that's where we're at. um, Out of week seven and eight, we've been talking about adjustments. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. Adjustments are actions or changes that prepare us for obedience. They are shifts that we need to make in response to what God tells us that lead us to obedience. So that the bridge between hearing what God wants and then obeying. Following Christ is made up of seemingly small, but essential adjustments. It really is the way of walking with Christ is paying attention to what, how he's leading and then adjusting as we go. And I think that'll make better sense as we look at the scripture Um, Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter, anybody need a Bible? Pete's got some in the back, he can bring forward. Anybody? I think we're good. 1 Kings, Old Testament. Chapter 17. Page 299, if you have a Bible that is similar, is... Is like the Pew Bibles. So what we're going to talk about is um, a, scenario, a couple of scenarios in which God uh, took the initiative to reach into people's lives who had to adjust. And it's about believing that God is enough. If you don't believe that God is big enough, strong enough, wise enough, in control enough, you're not going to make the adjustments. So here's what it looks like when God is enough. You ready? First Kings chapter 17. And we'll begin with verse 8. I called this a jar and a jug. Don't, don't you like it when I get the words to start with the same letter? Actually, it was the Bible that did that, so... A jar in the jug, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. This was the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. It was the prophet Elijah um, was being used by God to deliver messages to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Who were, who were worshiping uh, foreign gods, Baal worship. They were drawing God's people away. And um, Elijah is on the hit list because they don't like it. As a result, he, got, he has been in a safe environment. Previously in 1 Kings chapter 17, we find that God tells him, I want you to go to this brook, this little creek Um, because Elijah had said there's going to be a drought. There's going to be uh, a drought. And as a result, there's going to be a famine. There's not going to be enough food. And so God says to Elijah, I'm going to take care of you. And I want you to go to this little brook. And I have commanded ravens to feed you. And so he went there and he lived by that brook. And the ravens fed him every day. He had birds bringing him food. He was so that uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel couldn't find him. But after, and so the ravens brought, so think about this. Here's Elijah. Here's the prophet of God. Every day, ravens bring him bread and meat to eat, providing for him. He is being taken care of. And now the brook dries up. And God says to him, I want you to leave where you are and go to Zarephath, which appears on the surface to be an odd place for God to send him. Because it was a foreign land, it wasn't the, the land of God's presence, um, it, and it was near Jezebel's father. Foreign land, close to the father of the queen who wants to kill Ahab, and away from all of God's people. Seems like a strange place to send him. I mean, it, it seems to make sense in that Ahab probably wouldn't look there, but He's away from God. He's away from God's people. He's away from God's land and God's people. um, And he's in close proximity to physical danger. In the lion's den of Baal. So what did he do? It doesn't record him arguing or asking God any questions. He simply made adjustments. Here's the adjustment. He rose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Now, what had God said to him in verse 9? I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Uh, The adjustment for Elijah then is when he gets to Zarephath is to watch for a widow to show up. So that's what he's doing. He came to the gate of the city and that widow was there gathering sticks. He's watching to see where God is working. Does that sound familiar? He's watching to see where God is working. And he notices it. Now, if he's not watching to see where God is working and and the widow's there, he probably doesn't even notice her. How often do we miss what God is doing? Because we're not paying attention. And how often is it when we're going through difficult times. I mean, living by a brook, waiting for the ravens to show up with breakfast is hard, right? And, and not knowing if Ahab is going to be in the vicinity. And so he called out to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. They were in the middle of a drought, so their water would be precious. And yet she starts off, verse 11. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. They were in the middle of a drought, so water's in short supply. Food is in short supply. What would be her response? Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, she had gone immediately to get the water, but she said, as the Lord your God lives, Hmm. she's in the middle of a pagan land, and yet she's talking about God. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. We don't have a point of reference for this. Because I don't think any of us have come that close to starving. And yet here's a widow who has just enough for her and her son to have one last meal, and then she's resigned to dying. God is providing for this woman who evidently has some kind of understanding about God in a pagan land, as he also is providing for Elijah. So she says, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, our tendency, so Elijah hears that. Our tendency would be, if we're not walking in step with God, if we're not paying attention to God, to to say, oh, I am so sorry. I would not want to take your last meal. I, 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 I you know, I don't want to put that kind of burden on you. I, I would, you know, I... I'll just, I'll see if I can find some flour and oil. You know, I'll I'll just, I'll just try to help you out, please. But in our experience in God this last week, remember one of the takeaways or one of the summary statements was don't rob people of the opportunity to sacrifice for God. And so instead of Elijah going, oh, I'm sorry, he recognizes she's in the place for a miracle. Is God enough? Is God enough for Elijah? Well, he's proven it over and over again for Elijah. Is God enough for this woman? When we are at the end of ourselves and our resources and our strength, do we really believe that God is enough to listen and obey, to do the thing that doesn't make any sense? If I, get, if I make my last meal and I give it to this prophet, that means my son and I don't have a meal. And do I believe that God is enough? She recognizes him as a man of God. So is God enough? Is this God really speaking to her? Is God enough? Here's why we miss miracles. We don't need miracles. Or we don't experience miracles until we need them. And in our culture, how often do we need miracles? Not near as often as in a lot of parts of the, of the world. Why was it that the worm brands who were imprisoned over in Nazi Germany and then in Soviet Russia experienced miracle after miracle after miracle? It's because they were at the end of themselves and they needed a miracle. If we're not at the end of ourselves. And so God has to emotionally or in some way get us to the end of ourselves in a different way in our culture. I think that's a part of why fasting is so powerful is because we give up that which we need in order to say yes to God. And, and so there's something about that that causes us to be open to what God has. We don't need a miracle unless, we don't experience a miracle unless we need one. But most of the time when we get to the place where we need one, we turn to other things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As hard and as bad as it was for this woman, She was in the perfect place. Think about the agony that she's already gone through as she watches the jar and the jug get emptier and emptier and emptier. When she looks in the face of her son, who is malnourished and maybe dehydrated because she's been scraping and scrimping and just giving he and and herself enough to just barely live for so long because the drought's been going on for years. She has been in the place. This has been been a, a process of getting to the end of herself. And now she's in the perfect place for a miracle. You might want to write this down. Pain and need are often gifts, not problems. We turn to God much more often in pain and need than we do in abundance and comfort. Because if you don't need him, you don't turn to him. If we, if we think we don't need him, it's, it's the perception. Just because we're comfortable doesn't mean we're in any better place. At the end of ourselves is the place where God can work. And so, really, when we experience pain or difficulty or we get to the end of ourselves, our response should be, yay! God is up to something. This is going to be good. Remember that? This is going to be good. Because if since God is God and he is enough... When we get to the end of ourselves, it's not because God doesn't have enough in his bank account to provide for us. He's allowed us to get to where we are. Mm -hmm. So he's going, I got something better. And this woman of all the people in that city, all that people in that area is in the perfect place. She's at the end of herself and she has a man of God standing in front of her. We try to avoid getting to the end of ourselves when we should be leaning into God and letting him do what he wants. Elijah's response in verse 13. Elijah said to her, do not fear. That's a big command, right? She's she's got every reason to fear. I don't have enough food. I don't have enough oil. I don't have enough water. We're at the end of ourselves. There's no hope. The drought's not going away. But he says, do not fear. And God says the same thing to us. Mm -hmm. In the very time when it appears in an upside down world that we should be afraid, is the very time when God says, don't be afraid. Not because of your circumstances, but because God is enough. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first... Go ahead and make that last meal for you and your son. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And then afterward, make something for yourself and your son. We would say, oh, I don't want to take your last meal. He says, give me your last meal. Give me all you got. That sounds selfish. But it wasn't because God was working. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel The jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So the instructions, do not fear. Obey even though it doesn't make sense. Does God ever tell us to do things that doesn't make sense? I mean, fasting in and of itself doesn't make sense. And then he says, you will experience God. So he's making a promise that God will provide when it doesn't make sense. This is right side up. He's speaking right side up language in an upside down world. It sounds like a finch squawking at you, right? Unless the spirit of God is giving you the ability to really recognize that it's God. What did she do? Verse 15. She went and did as Elijah said. I love that statement. She just did it. She somehow had come to believe. So her adjustment was there's no fanfare. She just simply started away. Her adjustment was, okay. And then she starts walking back home. Her adjustment was to believe that she was going to live by doing what God wanted her to do. And she and her whole household, including Elijah, ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Wouldn't you have loved to been a fly on the wall or maybe had one of those nanny cams, you know, in there to see the next few days? Because as she, she goes back and she mixes the the flour and the oil and she makes, and she brings it to line and then she goes back and there's enough oil and flour to make her meal. And then Elijah becomes a part of their household and they get up in the next morning and she looks in the jug and, and the and the jar and there's enough for the next meal. And then the next and then later in the day she looks and there's enough for the next meal. And I don't know how old the boy was but I got to imagine after a couple of days he he gets up in the morning and he runs to the jug. Is there is there still some in there? Is there still some there? And they just it just never runs. You don't, she doesn't experience that unless she's at the end of herself. She believes the prophet of God. She adjusts her life to what he says and she obeys and she lives. Not because of who she was, but because God is enough. All she did was adjust her life. All she did was say yes. Does God do that today? He does what he needs to do. He does what we let him do. Now, one of the takeaways is not go home and find a jug and a jar and say, okay, God, we'll just eat out of this the rest of our lives. No, that was the plan for her. What is the plan for you? Well, you'll know it when you listen to God. When you move from just hearing a message, communication, to conversation, to communion, and you begin to really hear God and what he has in mind. Because God is enough. They live, I just have to believe that they lived in amazement every day, every day, every day, every day. And so they live happily ever after. Not quite. So let me, very quickly, audience participation. What were the adjustments that both Elijah and this woman had to make up until this point? Well, obedience to God, but in specific ways, what did they have to do? but in specific ways. What did Elijah have to do? Right. So he had to to look for the widow. He had to move from what had to have become comfortable. Raven's bringing food. Okay. God's in charge. He had to leave that and go someplace else. What else? Had to look. What else? What's that? He had to take her last meal which would have been uncomfortable for him. I can imagine. I mean, he's still human. She had to go and get the jar and begin the process and, and watch it happen. Their life, the Christian life is made up of small adjustments along the way. Okay, so it wasn't happily ever after because just about, it seemed like just about the time they started viewing all of this as normal, God provides an even deeper experience of himself. So look at uh, verse 17. So a jar and a jug, and then a death that didn't last. A death that didn't last. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. We call that death. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring... Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Not unsurprisingly, her emotions kick her brain out of gear. And and she forgets that the only reason she's still alive is because of Elijah and God working through him. And so the son's death was not God's punishment. But she does the right thing. She goes to Elijah, who's the representative of God. And she says, "What? I don't understand what's going on. I, I, you know, I thought you came to save us, but now my son has died." She was being invited to experience something even deeper than the jug in the jar. What appears to be a problem is actually an opportunity. Amen. Because was God still in charge? Amen. Was God still enough? Yep. Yeah. It was an invitation to experience something deeper. Verse 19, but Elijah doesn't know what's going on either. And he's become attached to her and her son because he lives there. Verse 19, he said to her, give me your son, which required an adjustment on her part. Because moms, when your child is hurt, what is the thing that you want to do the most? Hold on to him, right? You want to hold on to him. You want to try to help them. You, you don't want, you don't want some, somebody else taking your child from you. And so she had an adjustment she had to make is to surrender her son at the very point when she didn't want to. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord. Oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Even Elijah didn't understand at that point. He, but he did the one right thing that is just, the, the little thing that's required of us. He goes to God. He says, this is what it looks like to me, God. I don't understand what you're doing. What do you want? What are you doing, God? Show me. And he asked the question. He doesn't accuse God. He asks, is this what you're doing? Because Elijah didn't know what God was up to, but he used this interpersonal commun- communication, conversation, communion, and union because the Holy Spirit was living in him. Verse 21, then he got this nudge from God. He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again which was a bold request because, according to my memory, this had never happened before in the Old Testament. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. Can you imagine that scene? She handed him over to Elijah dead, no breath in him. Elijah goes upstairs, he comes back down the stairs, and he's alive. He's alive. And Elijah says, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now, God was giving her an invitation to experience him in a deeper way. That's the seventh reality on our diagram." By obedience, we experience God. She now understood more about who God was and what God does. And as a result, it developed a deeper intimacy with him. Mm -hmm. And the woman said, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord lives, uh, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She came to believe a little bit more through the jug and the jar, but now she came to believe even more. What what looked like a punishment or condemnation turned out to be an invitation. So when the worst things come in our lives, those are the greatest opportunities to experience God. That's the history of the Bible. So oftentimes it's when people thought they were going to die. The disciples on the boat, right? Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die because of the storm? They thought they were going to die. That was the moment they experienced Jesus in a deeper way. And it's the same for us. That Those times when we hit the hard stuff are the opportunities God wants to use. So takeaways. Settle the lordship issue and then every answer will be yes. This comes directly out of our Experiencing God book. Settle the lordship issue on the front end. Just... Just say, Lord, you are Lord. You are Lord. And whatever you say, I will do. And that's what we see in Elijah. He didn't say, Lord, it's really comfortable here having room service by the ravens and being protected and hiding from Ahab. He said, okay, I'll go to Zarephath. I'll look for a widow. He just, just kept saying yes. And that's what the widow did too. Even then her, her uh just elementary kind of understanding. She said, okay, I'll go make the last meal. Okay, I'll give you my son. It's just saying yes. Just settle the lordship issue first. And the the question is, is there anything in your life that God could ask you to do to which you would say that's too much? That's the lordship issue. Settle it on the front end. May God instructed adjustments to exit the upside down insanity in which we live and live right side up with God. Pay attention to God, make the adjustments no matter what they are or how hard they are or how ridiculous they sound. And then you, we allow God to turn us right side up because the upside down world will think that those instructions are so often crazy. I can't tell you, you know, when we started this whole thing of regular fasting and then I would go to the Rotary meeting, I wouldn't be eating. And after a while, I couldn't dodge the issue, you know, because I thought they would think I was crazy because in the early days. And I, and I began to tell them, well, you know, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. And they look at me like, what? You're giving up food for how long? Well, this time it's three days. Three days? How can you live without eating for three days? I'm going... I'd look at him and go, I think you got plenty of reserves. <laughs> and it became an opportunity to point to God. When we and next one, we leave, we have to leave some things behind to go with God. Those are adjustments. You can't just add them onto your life. You've got to let go. And that's why in our memory verse, you have to renounce everything that we have. We have to say goodbye to it, even if God restores it. And then a couple others that came to me this morning. um, I mentioned earlier, those who experience God most deeply are those who are making God-instructed adjustments. Sometimes, uh, you know, people who first come to Christ will look at someone who's been a Christian for a while and they'll, they'll look at the peace that they have and the intimacy that they have and go, Well, uh, you know, uh, shouldn't I have that? I've accepted Christ, shouldn't I have that? No, it comes through this period of making adjustments, surrendering, experiencing God deeper and deeper and deeper. It's like any personal relationship. And then finally, there's no greater joy, meaning and purpose and pleasure than living in that intimate relationship. There is none other than that. When Jesus says abundant life, he's serious. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He's serious about that. So what adjustments, this is a question from our Experiencing God from Richard Blackaby, what adjustments do you need to make so that you are dead center to where God would have you be today? What are the adjustments? What are the little things, the little decisions? It might be changing an attitude toward fasting. It may be um, leaning into God in a different way. It may be giving something up that you've been holding on to. It may be changing a lifestyle, maybe spending more time with Him, maybe stopping something or starting something. But here's what I know the Holy Spirit tells us. And so oftentimes we dismiss it as a random thought rather than an invitation from God. Let's pray. Lord, in your word, we recognize that you offer to do exceedingly abundantly more than all that we could ask or imagine. We confess that too often in our comfortable living, we turn to other things rather than to you. You know just to make adjustments and we... There's no urgency. So I pray that you would do whatever it takes. And even if it's hardship like with the widow and Elijah, bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will look to you. Even as I pray that, Lord, it's a bit scary because we don't know what that will look like. But God, we know that you are better on the other side. You are enough. I pray that you would give each person here the ability to say yes to you this week, yes to you next week during fasting and prayer, that we can experience you, we can have that which is of highest value. Give give us the courage and the strength and the determination and help us to do it with arms locked together as your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you this